on today's episode of Mile Higher. A very frustrating cold case, the disappearance of Amy Rowe Bechtel. Hi, this is Steve Bechtel calling. I'm a, I'm a missing a person. And I was wondering if you maybe had an extra. To have the thought yeah. process when you're dialing 911 to think, what would be funny to say right now? Seems to me that they think that Steve is somehow involved. We still believe there's that person out there, that one person that has that type of information. So I think it's also possible that there's an unknown group of individuals out there. If all of those killings really are connected to one person, it seems like they likely haven't been caught. Wait a minute. You know, if you guys are accusing me of something I didn't do, I'm going to want to talk to legal counsel here. I wouldn't let any client take a lie detector test. They're completely inaccurate. I hate when families have to go through that and get that hope and think maybe this is it. Maybe they're still alive. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 255. And today we are discussing a very frustrating cold case, a disappearance, the disappearance of Amy Rowe Bechtel. Out of Lander, Wyoming. Mm -hmm. She disappeared in a national forest. And what's crazy about this one is there's absolutely no evidence, really, no. to suggest what happened to her. It's like she vanished off the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. There are a few possibilities, but... Yeah, that's really all we have, but it's one that is still an active case, although it is cold, so they are still looking for tips and things like that. Mm -hmm. And all it takes is somebody, you know, maybe remembering something or someone coming forward with information to kind of send it into a new direction where hopefully Mm -hmm. it can be solved and we can find out what happened to Amy. She was 24 years old at the time when she disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. But before we dive into that case, we do have some exciting news to announce. We have launched a new collection for Mile Higher merch. did. Gosh, this has been a long time in the making. It's hard work doing merch. It really is. I don't think people realize like it's a lot, especially when you do it yourself like we do. Yeah, when you're really hands-on in it and tweaking designs slowly over time. And we work with a bunch of different designers, so... Took a long time to get this collection together, but I am super proud of how it turned out. I think you guys are going to love it. So there is a new collection for all three of our Mile Higher Media shows. They have all launched today, June 7th. Limited quantities, guys. So head over to milehiremerch.com if you want to get your hands on some. And this time around for Mile Higher, we wanted to do a themed collection. And of course, we went with our favorite theme, which is space. So we have several options. These are all custom designs that we really worked hard to put in a lot of cool little details in there. First, we have our Cosmic Explorer long sleeve. That one has an astronaut holding a planet with a little Mile Higher podcast logo on his jetpack. Sweet. We also have the Far Out shirt, which I think this one is my personal favorite. I don't know, maybe tied with the next one, but... I love this. This is an astronaut playing guitar in space. You like to think it's me floating through space playing the guitar, don't you? Yeah, kind of. You know what it reminds me of? That one movie where George Clooney goes off oh, to space in the gravity? end. gravity? Yeah. Where he's just out there floating He's listening to, to music. He's yeah. not playing music, but yeah. that's the kind of vibe I get. That's the inspo for it. The next item we have is the We Are Not Alone t-shirt. I really love this one because it's it's alien inspired, of course. And on the front, we've got the logo. And on the back, we've got this really cool illustration of a UFO abducting somebody. And there's a waterfall with an alien just kind of creeping there. 
really, really cool. It's out in the middle of nature and think, it says we are not alone. Yes. And I think this one is actually my favorite. I'm going to take it back because the color scheme is just so cool. I love the font on it. And I love when we do in a different variation of our logo on the front. I like different love colors. Yes. Yeah. It's yes. really cool. I love the colors we picked for that one. But my absolute favorite oh, yeah, you of love this, this collection, <laughs> because I came up with this concept, I'm going to take credit for it. Okay. Is the infinite campfire long sleeve this is super cool because it's a little alien and a little astronaut hanging out on the moon or some planet somewhere telling <laughs> ghost stories around the campfire roasting marshmallows that's pretty good it's really cool yeah this is by far my favorite one i think mm -hmm. really fun so if you guys want one like we said they're limited quantities so go get your hands on them at milehiremerch.com but with that out of the way let's go ahead and dive into the disappearance of Amy Rowe Bechtel. So Amy Joy Rowe was born August 4th, 1972 in Santa Barbara, California to her parents, Dwayne and Joanne Rowe. And Amy was actually the youngest of four kids. She had two older sisters, Jenny and Casey, and an older brother named Nels. She and her siblings all grew up in Jackson, Wyoming, and the Rowe siblings were always very, very close, really close. I mean, listening to interviews with them, they were some of the closest siblings I mean, they Very were like best friends, all four of them in each other's weddings. I mean, they considered themselves a team and they spent a lot of time together. Now, Amy was a very quiet but still profound girl. She wasn't shy, but when she spoke, she spoke because she had something to say and she said it well. She was very goal oriented, really smart and a very bright young person. And when she got set on doing something, she did it. Basically, if she was given enough time she could really do anything she put her mind to. She was a very determined type of person. Amy was raised spending a lot of time outdoors. I mean, growing up in Wyoming, there's not a whole lot to do there. So a lot of people spend time out in the great outdoors. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful in Wyoming. The scenery is stunning. So she grew up being very athletic. She started running cross country at the age of 13. But to be honest, she wasn't a standout cross country star at first. She usually placed below fifth during meets, but she still kept trying because she genuinely loved to run. Amy went on to study exercise physiology at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. And while she was there, Amy approached the cross country team coach to see, you know, if she could try out and join the team as a walk-on, which if you don't know what a walk-on is, it's basically a college athlete who tries out for the team without having been recruited or having earned any sort of athletic scholarship. And surprisingly, Amy actually made the team but she would usually lag a quarter mile behind the pack during long runs. And she didn't make the traveling squad for significant meets. But Amy wasn't discouraged. She was a sweet girl who loved to run and always had a smile on her face and a good attitude. She kept coming back season after season. She just wasn't one to give up. And the coach didn't really mind that she would sort of fall behind. In December of 1991, though, she was at the University of Wyoming and she met a fellow student named Steve Bechtel. He was three years older than her, and the two started dating in fall of 1992 and lived together for three years. They also adopted a dog together, a yellow lab named Johns. But before Christmas break, Amy's junior year, the cross-country coach actually found her in tears, and she explained that she was working three jobs, and she just couldn't afford to run and do school at the same time. And the coach felt bad, so he offered her half a scholarship for the semester, but it would just be for a semester, and then he'd have to give it to someone faster that fall. But I think that's what really motivated her to really like 
turn the jets on because yeah. that's when Amy really started to blow everyone away with her talent. She began running faster and faster and she placed seventh at conference championships, which this secured her half scholarship for the next semester. By the end of her senior year, Amy was an all-star runner. She broke school records even and placed second at the indoor championship. At the Tucson Marathon, she set her record time of three hours and one minute. In 1995, Amy graduated from college and she and Steve moved to a house at Nine Lucky Lane in Lander, Wyoming in January of 1996. The couple thought that Lander would be the perfect place to rock climb and run cross country. It had rugged terrain and it was a small town with a population of around 7,000 people which Lander was also known as sort of a climbing and outdoors hotspot. And Steve quickly became well-known there for his climbing abilities. Even more well-known was Todd Skinner, who was an elite climber. He and his wife, Amy Weisler, were the Bechtel's landlords and neighbors. Todd and Steve climbed together quite frequently. So the house that the Bechtel's were renting was a small, white, old miner's home. And it sat in a group of 12 similar houses that the locals nicknamed Climber's Row. So as an athletic couple... Amy and Steve would be in good company there. Amy was getting into climbing with Steve, and likewise, he was getting into running. The atmosphere was relaxed and a haven for climbing bums. It was the kind of community where people never locked their doors or even bothered to knock. So Amy and Steve later tied the knot in 1996, and it was Amy's philosophy that they could work when they were old and still have fun while they were young and could do all the things they loved. The two of them didn't mind working side jobs to pay the bills. And both Amy and Steve worked part-time at Wild Iris Mountain Sports, which is an outdoor equipment store in Lander. Amy also worked two other jobs, waiting tables at the Sweetwater Grill and teaching youth weightlifting classes at the Wind River Fitness Center. Amy was looking forward to hopefully qualifying for the 2000 Olympic Marathon Trials. She had a minor case of shin splints, but it wasn't slowing her down, and she'd been running well. Two days before she went missing, Amy was certified as a trainer. She had no issues with drugs, her mental health, and there was no infidelity in her marriage. Everything seemed good with the couple, and the Skinner said they had a stable, loving relationship. The couple was also very busy and excited to move. They had actually bought a house in Central Lander at 965 McDougal Drive three days before she went missing. She was getting a lot of work done setting up the electric phone line and other utilities. And at this point, Amy was 24 years old, and she had her whole life ahead of her. The new house was an exciting step into their future, but sadly, because of the events we're about to get into, Amy would never get to move in. So that brings us to July 24th, 1997, which started out as a pretty normal day for the Bechtels. Sometime around 9.30 a.m., Amy told her husband that she was off to teach a class at the Wind River Fitness Center. And after she finished her shift, she was going to run some errands in town. And that's pretty much what she did. Her original plan was to drive up to her parents' place to pick up furniture in Powell, 185 miles north. But the night before, she called her mom and rescheduled. She said she had too many errands to run. Meanwhile, Steve also had the day off from Wild Iris, so he'd have breakfast, and then he had plans to scout out a climbing spot with a climbing partner. At 2.30 p.m., Amy made a stop at Camera Connection in downtown Lander, which is a photo store, and Amy was planning on entering some of her photos into the Sinks Canyon photo contest. She asked a staff member about the photos, and he noticed that Amy seemed like she was in a bit of a hurry, and she kept looking down at her watch while they were talking. Also, it looked like she was dressed for a run, but she hadn't gone on it yet. She wasn't sweating, so it looked like she was about to take one. Amy was only in the store for about 15 minutes. She dropped off the photos to be matted and framed, and then left out the back door. 
Amy was training for a 10K hill climb sponsored by the fitness club she worked at. The 10K was scheduled for September 7th, and it would take place on Loop Road. This was a dirt road up in the Wind River Mountains near the Shoshone National Forest, about 45 minutes from her house. She'd been waiting years to do the climb, so she was really excited for it. Not only that, but the 10K was sort of a personal project of Amy's. She'd be creating flyers, measuring and marking the route, and planning the road closures. That morning, Amy hadn't told Steve that she'd be going for a run, but that wasn't unusual to him. They were both distracted and busy with the move and that day's schedule. And Amy was a runner, so Steve explained that, quote, it would have been like telling me that she was going to brush her teeth that day. So that day, Amy would only be taking a short run thanks to her shin splints, which is the absolute worst. I get those all the time. I don't run, but I walk. And, and even <laughs> walking, you get the shin yes. splints. Well, I walk on an incline. Okay. And it makes it hurt. Okay? That's okay. I'm trying. But anyway, she would mark the 10K trail from her car, driving slowly, using her car's odometer to measure the distance. She'd mark the trail, take a quick run, and then be back in time to meet Steve for dinner. The last mile of the Loop Road Hill climb would be relatively flat, starting out around Fry Lake. Once Amy got to this point, she pulled over and likely set out on her run. So she was last seen by witnesses on the Loop Road between Sinks Canyon and South Pass. She was wearing a yellow tank top, black shorts, Adidas Trail Response running shoes, Timex Ironman triathlon watch, and a small double-band wedding ring. Meanwhile, Steve had spent the day scouting out a climbing spot with his friend, Sam Leitner Jr., and Steve would also be bringing John's, the yellow lab, to accompany him and Sam. The rock that they had been looking at was in Dubois, so basically they were meeting in the middle. And Steve lived about 75 miles away in Lander, and Sam lived about 85 miles away in Jackson. Steve and Sam had a history of being climbing partners. They'd gone climbing together all over the American West and parts of Asia even. In fact, a year prior to this, they'd gone to Australia to climb, and Amy accompanied them. But the trip was actually pretty rocky, and Steve and Sam weren't getting along. In fact, Sam said that he was getting along better with Amy than her husband, so Sam flew home early. But the two still trusted each other as climbing partners. That day, they'd be meeting in Du Bois and traveling north into the Cartridge Creek area of the Shoshone National Forest. The two men brought along guns and bear spray in order to protect themselves from the grizzly bears that live up there. But the climbing trip had been sort of a bust. The spot was hard to get to and the rock wasn't the most ideal for climbing, so it wouldn't be worth the effort for them. And with thunderstorms looming in the area, Steve and Sam decided to go back to Du Bois, separate, and then head home. So Steve returned home around 4.30 p.m. that day, but when he came back, he noticed the house was empty and Amy wasn't there. But he didn't think too much of it at first. I mean, again, this couple loves to be outside, loves to run. So Steve just figured that Amy was out on a run and she would be back soon. And at 5 p.m., a couple was driving on Loop Road and spotted a blonde woman who was running towards Fry Lake. And they noticed that she was running unusually fast, almost as if she was trying to get away from something. They described the woman as wearing black shorts, similar to the ones that Amy was seen in earlier that day, a light-colored tank top, and a fanny pack. This couple was heading to the nearby Lewis Lake to meet two friends, and as they made their way back down around 7 p.m., they didn't see the blonde runner again. One of the witnesses turned from the passenger seat to talk to her guests in the back seat, and as she did, she caught a very short glimpse of a dirty white van parked beside the burnt gulch cutoff. It looked like there was something red in the back of the van, but that's basically all we have from those witnesses. 
At 6.45 p.m., Todd stopped and asked if Amy and Steve wanted to join some friends for dinner. They were going to grab some pizza. Steve declined and said he was going to wait for his wife Amy to get back. But Amy didn't make it home for dinner. Hours continued to go by and Amy still wasn't home. Finally, the sun went down over Lander and Steve really started to worry a little bit more. Amy wouldn't be on a run for this long out in the dark. So Steve stopped by Todd Skinner's house around 8.15 to ask if he and his wife had seen Amy, but they hadn't. The couple would be going to a movie that night at 8.45, but they weren't too worried because they figured she'd be back by then. Steve started calling around to see if any friends and family had seen Amy, and nobody had. So he started driving around town, checking her usual running paths and wild iris, but more hours continued to pass with no signs of Amy. At 9 p.m., Steve called Amy's parents. He knew that she'd been thinking about driving up to see them, but they didn't know where she was either. Then he calls his parents and Amy's sister, but she's not with any of them. So when 10.30 p.m. rolls around and Amy still hadn't made it home, Steve decided to do something. He picked up the phone and called 911 to report Amy missing. Which we have a very brief clip of the 911 call. So let's listen to that here real quick. Hi, this is Steve Beckles, and I'm uh, missing a person. And I was wondering if you maybe had an extra. So that's all we have of that 911 call that we can play. But even just that brief seven seconds is what the fuck? kind of bizarre to me, honestly. We yeah. have a missing person. I'm wondering what? if you have an extra. A spare around any place? Like, that's just the most bizarre way to So casual, that. like making a joke. Which, I mean... Obviously, it's hard to judge someone's 911 call, of course. I know people will say that to us, but don't you think that's pretty weird? It's pretty weird because it's also 1030 now. Yeah. It's, so it's we're talking five-ish hours mm-hmm. later than she should have been home. And you would think, I know, I know for me personally, if you were out running in the forest somewhere and five hours had gone by, first of all, I wouldn't have waited five hours to start looking for you mm-hmm. or get the authorities involved but i certainly wouldn't sound like that yeah or say the things that you just said by that point you have to have some type of concern even if you don't think something horrible right like foul play happened so many other things could have happened she could be injured her car could be broken she She could have been attacked by an animal yeah i do have to say i guess i kind of get it on some sense he's thinking like again this is a really independent seeming couple yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and maybe he he's almost like sheepish as he's making that call making a joke because and he's in his head he's not thinking the worst he's thinking she's out running errands we're so busy and you know maybe she got up caught up talking to a friend or something and this is so embarrassing because she's gonna come back and Mm -hmm. i'm gonna have reported or missing i see what you mean and it i you know i do find it odd it kind of makes me think about what we were talking about with murder with my husband when Mm. garrett was talking about um calling the cops how long would it take for you to for somebody to call the cops to come and find you he was talking about a recent thing where i peyton was having trouble Mm -hmm. breathing oh yeah Yeah. and the way he was talking to yeah but she's right in front of him i mean that's such a different situation i just think that when it's this late at night and you're talking someone's missing in the wilderness it's definitely odd. It's I, odd. Yeah. I think at this point he didn't really know where she was. So he didn't know she was lost in the woods. But that's also weird because you don't know where she is. So right. it, it is definitely odd. But 
I guess something to consider, maybe food for thought, but yeah, I mean, of course. But you also have to remember he already called her family too. So it's like he calls them and they don't they haven't seen her, they haven't heard from her. So mm-hmm. I feel like that would co- maybe cause you more concern if they were like, yeah, we haven't seen her. Yeah, no one no one has seen her. So I think it's five. Strange. I mean, five hours is is a long time. It's pretty late I think at if, that point. If he was just being casual in the way he was reporting, it'd be one thing. But making the joke to make to have the thought yeah. process when you're dialing nine one one to think what would be funny to say right now. Yeah, you have to like think of that right? joke. Like you had to. I don't know. Wondering it's, if you have a spare. Yeah, that's just odd. Definitely odd. Really weird to me. So naturally, the Skinners were also very worried, and they actually went out looking for Amy on routes that they thought she would have run. Steve actually stayed home while they searched in order to wait for police and to be by the phone in case Amy called. For about an hour, the Skinners drove around Loop Road trying to find Amy. As they figured, you know, she probably just gotten injured or ran out of gas somewhere, and they were going to just find her stranded out there. And late that night around 1 a.m., they actually found Amy's white Toyota Tercel wagon abandoned. It had been left parked on the burnt gulch turnoff that splits onto Loop Road, which right there I'm thinking, what about those people that saw that white van at the almost the exact spot? And mm-hmm. looking back now later, that woman is like brought to tears when she thinks of this situation because right. she's like, I know it was her. Like it had to be her. Yeah. So Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, how many other I mean, I'm sure there's other people that go running in this area, but there was not, nobody else that they mentioned. It's not like they were like, oh yeah, we passed all these people running. You know, there was this person, this person. No, there was just this one woman who meets the description of Amy who was out running. And then they mentioned this white van that was weirdly parked out there. I mean, that that to me is cause for concern. Mm-hmm. So the Skinners were sort of relieved at this point. They figured they'd walk up to the car and immediately find Amy inside. But when they did, she wasn't there. And the car had been left unlocked the keys were sitting on the seat next to her sunglasses and under her to-do list. Her green Eagle Creek wallet was missing. There was no sign of struggle near or in the car. There were puddles below the driver's door and behind the car from recent rainfall, but there were no footprints or tire tracks. The Skinners figured that Amy had parked her car there and then set out on her run, which is likely the case, and she probably left the car on her own accord. They thought she probably fell when she was running and broke her ankle or her leg or something and just needed help. So they were still very concerned, of course, but they truly believed that they would find her nearby quickly. But they kept walking around and shouting her name over and over, and they got no response. I think a couple things here that I want to dissect. So it wasn't like she was running through like some trails, through a bunch of trees and things like that. This is like a drivable road so she's running on the road so you would think that if if everything happened the way that we we think initially she's just out running and she fell or hurt herself that it'd be very easy to locate her on that road and potentially someone would have already found her Mm -hmm. prior to them going out and searching i mean these hours and hours have gone by by this point so you would think there would have been at least somebody who'd been driving along that would have found her had she hurt herself and gotten her you know to safety or to you know medical help something like that but it's it's very very weird that her car is found unlocked keys 
sitting on the seat next to her sunglasses and her wallet is missing, which some would say that runners often leave keys behind their car. They don't want to carry it. It means it's kind of heavy and annoying to carry around. Although I do find it a little odd that she didn't bring her sunglasses with her because I'm, you know, as a runner, you probably take your sunglasses with you if you're going to go running. But maybe it was the sun was already down. So maybe she left those in the car. But the wallet is a little interesting. Mm -hmm. So either she took that with her or somebody came and took it out of her vehicle potentially. And then if you look at her to do list, she has most of everything that we kind of went over crossed off other than flyers for race get more boxes and mow lawn. So that was also on her to-do list for that day, which indicates she was full well planning on mm-hmm. mapping out the race and doing other things afterwards. Right. So very, very weird. So Steve the Skinners and about a dozen other of his friends started searching that next morning for Amy. And by the end of the day, a volunteer search team of around 100 people assembled to scour the area for her. They used ATVs, dogs, and dirt bikes to try and locate her. The team searched the next day, and by the third day, the search area was expanded to a 30-mile radius. But more days went by, and they still didn't find any sign of Amy. The first lead investigator on Amy's case was a new detective named Dave King. And unfortunately, the investigation was botched pretty quickly. For one, investigators let the Skinners drive Amy's car home, which potentially destroyed her contaminated evidence. Now a key piece of the potential crime scene had been messed with. A lot of the stuff was lost in those first three days. Police found a footprint that looked like it came from Amy's sneaker, which was found on Loop Road. But before police could try and match it, the footprint was destroyed, which is all very unhelpful. I can't believe they didn't at least like do a forensic search of the car because uh, it's clear it is like inexperienced because you roll up right. on the car like, oh, it doesn't look like anything happened here, but that doesn't mean that there's not somebody's DNA there or forensics mm-hmm. that you could do to rule that out before just like, all right, just take it, you know, take yeah. it home. Like that happens a lot, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And Dave King himself didn't even show up in Lander until a week later. He had been off in the mountains on a horse packing trip and Dave had recently been promoted from jailer to detective, and he didn't know the first thing about how to lead a search. Which I was just going to say, going from jailer to detective. I know. That's usually not a promotion that happens in most departments. I'd say probably because this is a small, small department. It's not uncommon for this type of, but that's like a huge jump in skill, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To go from just dealing with inmates, at processing inmates at the jail or whatever, to now being a full-blown investigator of a missing person like that's that's a big jump so the volunteer leading the search for amy was a man named john gookin who had a phd and is a search and rescue expert he was the one that helped coordinate the mountain search for amy and when dave king got back he quickly turned to john for help he literally asked him well what can i do So this town, like we mentioned earlier, was filled with very outdoorsy people who really knew the area well. And so the volunteer search team was made up of a lot of very fit, experienced search and rescue people. And they were searching the mountain for a week. If she was up there, they would have found her, but they didn't. Five days after the search started, the investigation turned from a missing persons investigation to a criminal investigation. And police blocked off Loop Road to try and find witnesses and collect tips. I was just going to say too, John Gookin, he runs a 
basically school. It's called the National Outdoor Leadership School up in Lander, Wyoming. And they t- that, that's like what they specialize in is wilderness education. Mm. Um, they do all sorts of wilderness medicine courses. They have stuff on all sorts of uh, wilderness expeditions they lead. I mean, that that's like what they do for a living. So these guys, if there's anybody that's going to be able to find Amy out there and know where to look, how to look, it's yeah. these guys, yep. which is in, in being in, in a place where people are constantly outdoors doing recreational activities, people get lost a lot of out course. there in the wilderness. I mean, it's very yeah. easy to get turned around and, you know, or get hurt or something like that. So th- this isn't like foreign to them at all. Like mm-hmm. they, they know how to handle these situations, obviously better than the police did, which is always concerning. But those volunteers were very, very well versed in search and rescue. So if you consume a lot of true crime content, you probably know that when someone goes missing or is murdered, the first person that police usually look at is the person's spouse or significant other. And in Amy's case, this was no different. On August 5th, a week and a half after Amy went missing, Steve went in for an interview and investigators started to grill him on his whereabouts on the 25th. And that's when an FBI agent came in and flung a stack of papers at Steve and he said, We know you were responsible for your wife's disappearance. Here's the evidence to prove it. We actually have a clip of Steve, the detective, and Steve's lawyer talking about this interview. Let's play that. I was pretty blown away. You know, I turned to Dave. I was like, you know, Dave, what's going on here? And then this is is not cool. He was floored, basically. He uh, slumped down in the chair. The guy says, look, if you take a polygraph test, we'll get this cleared up right now. And I was like, wait a minute. You know, if you guys are accusing me of something I didn't do, I'm going to want to talk to legal counsel here. I wouldn't let any client take a lie detector test. They're completely inaccurate. Uh, They come in about one third of the time as a false positive. And it would be a terrible injustice to Steve if he fell within that one third false positive and it was used wrongly against him. So when this all happened, too, for some more context, Steve initially did say he would take the polygraph test the next day. Mm -hmm. But then, obviously, he talked to his lawyer, and his lawyer's like, absolutely not. So he didn't end up taking it. So obviously, you can take that for what it is. Some people are like, oh, well, you know, that's odd. Why wouldn't you just take the polygraph, clear your name, and, you know, move on with things? But obviously, there's way more reasons not to take it because they're extremely yeah. unreliable. It gives the police tunnel vision. If you do fail the polygraph, you know, mm-hmm. they're just gonna go all in on on trying to prove that you did it because yeah. based on this polygraph. It could definitely sway them in your direction. I mean, can it really be used against you to convict you? Not necessarily, not really, because not admissible in court. Now, as for hard evidence against Steve, there really wasn't anything. There was some circumstantial evidence that convinced some, but not others. One woman reported that the day Amy went missing, she had seen a truck driving fast in the area where Amy's car was found and that there was a blonde woman in the passenger seat. The camper found the same truck parked at the search site the next day, and the description of the truck that she gave matched Steve's truck. However, the woman couldn't positively identify the driver as Steve. A youth camp minister reported seeing a truck matching the description of Steve's truck on the 24th, and it was parked by itself in the spot where Amy's car was found. It's unclear whether or not this is the same witness. So a bit confusing here. I was just going to quickly say that it's also possible. Obviously, eyewitness testimony is is very unreliable. So you can't really derive much from it. And also the fact this is Wyoming and everybody pretty much drives a truck in Wyoming. So it'd be very easy to confuse one truck for 
you know somebody else's truck i mean i'm sure there's a lot of trucks that look the same or the same make and model up there so just want to put that out there steve had told police that he had called the hospital on the 24th but police say they can't find any such call in the phone logs however they did find an important call that potentially exonerates steve at 4:43 p.m that afternoon he called a friend around the same time the camper claimed to see his truck on loop road this spot was a 45-minute drive from the Bechtel's house in Climbers Row. Also, Steve said he had an alibi for that day. He was again out scouting a climbing spot with Sam Leitner. And Sam verified to police that Steve had been with him that day. But police seemed to be skeptical of Sam backing up Steve's story. The two had told police that they had bought a hammer for climbing in Du Bois that day, but they couldn't produce a receipt for it. Sam had a record of a gas purchase in Du Bois, but they couldn't place Steve there. Again, it seems like they were really zeroing in on Steve, but people questioned whether or not it was even possible that Steve could have committed the crime. Because again, Amy was out in the Shoshone National Forest have, having a run, and they were up in Du Bois. So that's you know some distance between those two places. So would they have even had the opportunity to get down there and commit the crime? Plus, Sam even said that he had been getting along better with Amy than Steve on the Australia trip. He actually hadn't been getting along well with Steve at all. So Sam brought up the point that why would he cover for someone that he was on bad terms with, who was accused of murdering his friend? He wouldn't have lied for Steve. It just didn't make any sense. But again, police were really trying to zero in on Steve. They were able to secure a search warrant for Nine Lucky Lane, which was executed the day after the FBI interview. And the search was to find samples like hair or fingernail clippings to potentially ID Amy's body. But it was also to collect clues. But they did find both Amy and Steve's journals. And when they examined Steve's journals, they did not like what they found. And they're pretty weird. We actually don't have the full journal entries, but from what's been reported, they are strange. Many of the entries have themes of power, control, and even death. One source said that one journal contained an undated poem about murdering a person and then hiding the remains. And according to some sources, many entries showed how he really felt about women, and they were concerning. There were entries with poetry or lyrics that had violent overtones. They described controlling women, and some sources report that this included controlling Amy specifically. But Steve told investigators that some of the journal entries were from high school. He said they were just lyrics he wrote for his high school band. He said that other entries were stories he submitted to a short story contest back in the day. Todd Skinner, Steve's neighbor, was contacted by the FBI 10 days after the search at Lucky Lane, and the agent told him, quote, we're going to show you a side of Steve Bechtel you've never seen before. After this, you're going to look at him in a completely different light. But when Todd read the entries, he said they were innocuous and taken out of context. Some of them were Steve's thoughts on getting strength and power or the relationship between climbing and power. One of the quotes said, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. There was another entry about death, which was written the day after Steve's cousin was killed in a railroad accident. Todd read the entries and told the agents to show him the bad stuff, but according to Todd, that was the FBI's bad stuff. So like we said, these entries have not been released, and that's due to the continuing investigation. So we haven't been able to see the full contents, but the family was able to read some of the entries themselves, and they were absolutely shocked. Steve insisted that he and Amy had a good relationship. But Nels, Amy's brother, had noticed some things that were off with them. And he had noticed these things in the recent past. 
Many of Amy's family members say that Steve seemed to be controlling. And it wasn't like Amy to just be subservient to someone that she was with, like Steve. So he told the police about his suspicions. And one night in particular really stood out to Nell's. Amy and Steve came to his house for dinner, and Nell's wife, Teresa, noticed that Amy had bruises on her. And when Teresa tried asking about them, she tried to laugh it off. She sort of made a joke saying, oh, Steve can get a little rough sometimes. But Amy wouldn't look her or Nell's in the eye. He knew that this was not a normal reaction at all, especially for Amy. And when she made the joke, Steve came over and put his hands on her shoulders. The whole thing was just really off. And according to Nell's, Steve refused to come to Nell's and his wife's wedding because a possible former boyfriend of Amy's would likely be there. Which as a side note, Amy did go to the wedding, thankfully, and Nell said that he was so close with his sisters when it came time to decide who would be the best man, he chose all three of them. Other members of the family had noticed controlling behavior on Steve's part. When they went out to eat, Amy would look at Steve as if she were asking him what she should order. It seemed like he told her where to go and when, and she obeyed. And this just wasn't like Amy growing up. So after Amy's disappearance, the 10K in Shoshone was renamed in honor of her. It became the Amy Bechtel Hill Climb. It was held on September 28th. And about 150 people gathered to run it, all wearing shirts with Amy's face and the tip line number. A climbing fundraiser was also held the day before. Steve, with the help of Todd Skinner and Amy Weisler, ran a makeshift search headquarters out of Climbers Row, for months, and Nels and the rest of his family also operated their own search headquarters, but they worked separately from Steve. And 80 days after Amy went missing, Steve talked to a reporter with Runner's World, and he acknowledged that the odds of finding Amy alive at this point were thin. But he said he still held out hope, and he thought that until he knew for certain that she was gone, he would assume that she'd come home. He often took a solitary walk down Loop Road and said that he would think of her. Now, Amy's family has been very frustrated with Steve. They feel like he's really kind of stonewalled the investigation, and they're very displeased that he didn't take a polygraph. Amy's sisters ended up going on the Geraldo Rivera show on February 3rd, 1998, and Geraldo implored Steve to be more cooperative with the authorities. A year after Amy went missing, a dive team did end up searching Fry Lake, which is the lake at the end of Loop Road. Cadaver dogs from as far as Montana came in to search. One search dogs followed a scent down Burnt Gulch and stopped at a sunken bog. Investigators sifted through all the dirt in the hole thoroughly, but they didn't find anything. Only two months after Amy went missing, Dave King resigned from his detective position and handed the case over to Detective Sergeant Roger Reiser. Dave resigned so he could focus on his campaign to be elected as Fremont County Sheriff. But the fact he was campaigning and no longer a detective on the case didn't stop him from appearing on the Geraldo Rivera show with Amy's sisters. Steve's lawyer even accused him of using Amy's case to bolster his campaign. Dave was actually elected as sheriff in 1998, but he wouldn't stay sheriff for very long. He actually resigned on November 3rd, 2000 after he was accused of misconduct. Dave said it was because of health problems, and these health problems actually stemmed from three days of cocaine usage back in May of 2000. And later, he pled guilty to stealing cocaine from a law enforcement storage locker. And this cocaine was meant to train the drug-sniffing dogs. Anyway, the investigation into Amy's disappearance continued, but not much came up. Investigators did find out that Amy had sort of a stalker while she was back in school in Laramie. 
He was a middle-aged man named Kelly McLeod who spoke to Amy frequently while she waitressed at a coffee shop. But Kelly became obsessive to the point where it made Amy very uncomfortable. And when Kelly and Amy had met in 1995, he was actually a fugitive. He had been on the run since 1991, fleeing sexual assault charges in Kentucky. So obviously, investigators were very interested in talking to Kelly. They located him in 1998, and he was in an Oregon prison awaiting trial for those sexual assault and fugitive charges. Kelly said the two started off friendly and Amy had gotten Kelly into running. Kelly also told investigators that Amy had heart-to-hearts with him about her and Steve's relationship. And these conversations apparently didn't contain anything investigators didn't already know. Investigators determined Kelly was in Banger, Maine on the night of the 23rd, and they didn't consider him a suspect in the case. So back in late August of 1997, the FBI actually called up NASA for help with the case. They requested satellite photos from the area Amy disappeared from on the day she went missing. NASA sent the images over, but they didn't show Amy or give clues as to what happened to her. In January of 1998, the FBI tried again to check satellite photos, and this time they were provided by the Russian space station, Mir. But they couldn't see anything in these photos either because clouds had been covering the area, unfortunately. And then in 1999, a suspected gravesite was found in the Wind River Mountains near Lander. Bones were recovered and sent in for testing, but we don't know anything more about this. However, at this point, we can kind of safely assume that the bones didn't belong to Amy and it was likely animal bones. Also, investigators later said that people reported small dug-up graves and these had actually been dog burials. And Lander is a town with a pretty low crime rate, but in the year before Amy went missing, there was an increase in break-ins and rapes, and many women in the town started enrolling in self-defense courses. But it's unknown if any of these incidents have any connection to Amy's case. Other people who were in the Loop Road area on the 24th also reported hearing gunfire at a lake eight miles away. So when I was doing research for this case, um, I was trying to find more about this gunfire, and I couldn't really find anything. And I'm assuming at this point they determined it's unrelated, but Mm -hmm. I do think it makes sense given they're up in the mountains, you know, isolated areas. There's pretty commonly people firing off guns. Yeah. Um, and there's there was no specification on exactly where it was coming from and like what time. Mm-hmm. So very easily could have been hunting or it's definitely interesting to think about though. Mm-hmm. Um when I think back to the uh, Moab murders right. and how they were looking for people that had heard gunfire in that area from specific times and they were able to kind of get some developments in that case from that. So Mm -hmm. something to think about. Worth noting. Yeah. Yeah. In June of 2003, a hiker found a watch that looked similar to the one Amy owned in the Papoja River. However, police haven't been able to confirm whether or not it belonged to Amy. Many articles have been written about Amy's disappearance, including an outside runner's world and people magazine. And these articles led to police getting their first tip in months. A woman from Sarasota, Florida, called police and told them she was sure she had seen Amy. She said she looked disheveled, homeless, and was walking through the streets. Amy's family had a burst of hope as they thought maybe Amy had been kidnapped and taken there, and she was actually alive. Investigators from Wyoming actually flew out to investigate this tip. They were able to locate and identify the woman, but sadly, she wasn't Amy. That's the worst I hate when families have to go through that and get that hope and think maybe this is it. Maybe they're still alive and then they're just crushed. It's got to be so draining. 
So many people put out the theory that Amy could have been killed by the so-called Great Basin Killer. The Great Basin murders are a loosely grouped string of murders that occurred 1983 to 1997. Many of the murders are believed to be the work of one person, a serial killer. The name, of course, comes from the Great Basin region of the United States, and most of the victims' remains were found in Wyoming, Idaho, Nevada, and Utah near the interstate highways that pass through these states. This killer has not been conclusively identified, but many people do believe that he is convicted murderer Dale Wayne Eaton. Dale was a divorced father and drifter. He lived in the middle of nowhere, 75 miles from Casper in between there and Riverton. Two months after Amy went missing, Dale tried to kidnap the Breeden family. Shannon and Scott Breeden were traveling with their five-month-old baby, Cody, down Interstate 80. While they drove through Patrick Draw, an area three hours from Lander, they started having car troubles. So they pulled over to the side of the highway. A disheveled-looking 51-year-old man in a green van pulled over and offered to help. He told the family to get in his van, and he asked Shannon to drive. She agreed, but unfortunately for them, that man was no good Samaritan. He was, in fact, Dale Wayne Eaton. When Dale got into the passenger seat, he grabbed a rifle from the back seat and pointed it at the family, and he ordered Shannon to drive south of the highway into the desert. But Shannon thought quick on her feet. She floored it and made a tight circular turn, which this allowed Scott to jump out of the car with her baby, and Shannon jumped out the other side. Dale grabbed Shannon, and he was about to stab her with a knife when Scott grabbed Dale's arm, snatched his rifle, and whacked him over the head with a rifle butt. A struggle followed, and the breeding stabbed Dale, beat him with his own rifle, and then hopped in the van and sped off, making their escape and leaving Dale lying in the dirt. That is badass. Wow. That is that is insane. Amazing mm-hmm. courage and bravery to do that. And yeah. Quick thinking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dale was arrested for attempted kidnapping, and he accepted a plea deal, which meant he was sentenced to just 99 days in jail. From there... Due to prison overcrowding, he was paroled to a halfway house with a strict probation and curfew. He was allowed to use his van to go to work. And then later in June of 1998, Dale failed to show up to work. Police arrested him at gunpoint and found a shotgun in his truck. So he was imprisoned on federal weapons charges. Authorities were able to establish that Dale had been seen in Lander around the time that Amy went missing. Dale's brother Richard said that he knew Dale had been camping in the Burnt Gulch area around the time of Amy's disappearance. In fact, the area where Amy was making her upcoming 10K was actually the Eaton Brothers' favorite elk hunting and trout fishing spot. And after he heard about his brother's attempted kidnapping charges, he began to suspect that he did something to Amy Bechtel. And he called police with his tip in July of 1998. But after Richard called the police with this info and his suspicions, the detective on the case at the time, Detective Riser, immediately dismissed it. Instead, he believed Dale's niece, who told him that Dale was visiting her in Greeley, Colorado, at the time of Amy's disappearance. At the time, there was a $100,000 reward for anyone who had information that could resolve the case. So the investigators were suspicious of Richard's motives, and they thought he could have just been trying to get the money. At the time, they didn't know that Dale was connected to a decade-old unsolved homicide. In March of 1988, a young 18-year-old woman named Lisa Marie Kimmel was on her way from Denver to visit a friend in Billings, Montana. She planned to stop in Cody, Wyoming to see her boyfriend, but she never made it. On March 25, 1988, en route to Cody, Lisa disappeared. A week later, her body was found in the North Platte River near Casper. 
and her case was named after her custom Little Miss license plate. Lisa's murder went unsolved for over a decade until DNA evidence linked Dale to her murder in 2002. Dale was already in jail on felony firearms charges when the murder was conclusively linked to him. He was also awaiting trial for manslaughter after he killed his cellmate via a vertebral artery punch. Police found Lisa's car buried in Dale's backyard. He had taken it as a sick trophy and drained his septic tank into it. Back in 1988, Dale had kidnapped Lisa from a remote rest stop, and for several days, he held her captive in a filthy converted school bus, and he repeatedly raped her before brutally killing her and dumping her body. In March of 2004, Dale was found guilty of this murder, and he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. But he was granted a stay of execution in December of 2009 after his lawyers argued that he had been mentally incompetent to stand trial. Around 2010, Detective Sergeant John Zerga was assigned to the case after the previous detective retired. Zerga really tried to restart the investigation and clean up the mess that the first detective had made of it, but it was difficult given the amount of time that had passed. Here's Zerga talking a little bit more about the case. From such a small community where we don't have a lot of criminal activity, um, especially in that time, to uh, just go up in the mountains for a run and then just disappear and and basically just disappear without any traces of evidence um, for the officers to follow up on. We still believe there's that person out there, that one person that has that type of information. We need that tip or that lead. And, and we did develop some new stuff that uh, me and the FBI agent, myself and the FBI agent are looking into. He was able to have the Lucky Lane house searched around 2010. He and the FBI came in, did luminol testing, and brought in cadaver dogs, but unfortunately they didn't find anything. He also got a tip that Steve had buried Amy under the driveway of their new home before the concrete set, but their search of the driveway also turned up nothing. Investigators also checked out a lead that drunk drivers had hit Amy and buried her body in a shallow grave somewhere on the nearby Wind River Reservation. Detective Zerga actually got permission to search the tribal lands, and he actually found the vehicle involved in the alleged accident. But when the vehicle was processed by forensic investigators, nothing related to Amy's disappearance was found. Over the years, investigators have tried to talk to Dale about the case, but none have been successful. Detective Zerga and a colleague went to talk to Dale's family members in 2012. Richard, his brother, backed up the tip he gave police when Amy first went missing. Detective Zerga and the FBI tried talking to Dale later that year, but he basically refused to talk and told them to go to hell. And in November of 2014, a U.S. district judge overturned his death sentence and commuted it to life in prison. And now that Dale wasn't facing the death penalty, investigators had lost a bargaining chip that could have gotten him to talk. According to a former FBI agent familiar with the Little Miss murder, Dale has a personality consistent with the profile of serial killers. Other FBI agents working on the case said that, based on his profile, Dale had likely killed before. Here are some of the potential signs, as Dale had a troubled, violent, and unstable childhood. He left Kimmel's body in a popular fishing spot, creating a public spectacle. He took her car as a trophy. He left the Stringfellow Hawk note at her grave. It says, Lisa, there aren't words to say how much you're missed. The pain never leaves. It's so hard without you. You'll always be alive in me. Your death is my painful loss but heaven's sweet gain. Love always, string fellow hawk. I think the FBI are, are obviously correct in saying that he's exhibiting 
a lot of of different signs that are consistent with other serial killers. Um, I mean, I mean, obviously, taking her car as a trophy and just that note is very, very bizarre as well. I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Dale has killed numerous individuals. Again, we don't have proof of that, so right. it's hard to say without him divulging more information or more evidence being found. I do think it is possible he was up in this area, although he i just feel like we would have found something without getting dale to talk more though mm -hmm. about where he was during this time period i think it's very difficult to even connect him to this at all i mean obviously victim wise she would be probably type of individual he would he was looking for right but, but there's just there's not enough information or evidence to point that he did this numerous times because like yeah he does have the signs of a serial killer but that doesn't necessarily mean he is a serial killer like maybe this was the first time that he he did this um he seemed very very proud of it so i, I don't know it's it's hard to say it's possible of course it's possible like it, and it could be another killer i mean there's right there's definitely more opportunities for other serial killers to be out there that mm -hmm. maybe haven't been caught or just have never talked about this particular incident but the more and more i kind of learn about the dale and what he was doing I, I don't know if i necessarily think he was connected to this anyway is it possible yes but so you I don't think there's more evidence pointing a different direction mm -hmm. than to dale you potentially don't being the one feel that he was the great basin killer then not necessarily i mean just based on the way that he you know with the little miss murder and the way that mm -hmm. he he conducted that it seems like he was kind of sloppy and mm -hmm, i agree and kind of like just had focused on this one individual because i mean if you look at other serial killers out there the ones that are able to get away with it for a long long time are much much i guess smarter about the way they go about disposing of their victims and hiding the crimes yeah they're, they're not so like brazen and bearing a car and stuff like that's that's strange like that that's pretty bold to do something Especially like that. Especially with that many. I mean, if all of those killings really are connected to one person and that person is the great basin killer, it seems like they likely haven't been caught. Right. Well, it's it's it kind of reminds me of like the smiley face killers because there's a possibility that it, the smiley face killer isn't one killer. There could be multiple individuals, but they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're kind of grouping. They're looking at the patterns and locations and timing and similarities between the different crimes and they're that's how they're kind of coming up with, well, it could be one killer that's moving, that's, you know, killing in this area and yeah. all the victims are similar. So therefore it is possible it's one, but it's also possible there's more than one operating. Do I people mean, really believe Smiley Face could be one person? I've never heard that. I mean, I I, I think the general consensus is that it's yeah. multiple. It has to be, right? Multiple individuals. Group. And that's the thing too, is like the more, I, I think a lot of us just based on what, we learn from or what we hear about a lot of us it depends on how much you know about serial killers too but there's mm -hmm. a lot of serial killers that operate in groups as well like that are mm -hmm. either a cult or a gang or something mm -hmm. like that and i think sometimes that gets overlooked and we like to just point to one individual because that's just kind of what that's what the fbi looks at the most of the time is these ind singular individuals who go and kill multiple people i mean think of ted bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and some of the big names out there, uh, the Green River Killer and stuff like that. But I think people overlook uh, 
groups of individuals Mm -hmm. that abduct people and kill people that there's actually gangs and uh sometimes satanic cults and things like that who are operating especially in these remote areas there's a lot of strange individuals that live out there in the middle of nowhere and i think oftentimes the fbi go to like what they investigate most and that's kind of these singular killers as opposed to so many cases that i've covered on lights out that have been these these groups of individuals that go out and abduct individuals and kill people the fbi often has no idea about them which is mm-hmm. interesting to me and it's often you know the local authorities end up solving it or they don't solve it at all so i think it's also possible that there's an unknown group of individuals out there in this area i mean it's a huge vast wilderness out there i mean there's tons of people that could just be living there's off-grid communities out there there's all sorts of other scenarios that could have played out here other than just it was the great basin killer and they don't even know if it was dale or not for sure so i i think it's interesting to consider and is it, it's certainly possible that uh, the great basin killer was responsible for amy but i just feel like when you're dealing with singular individuals it's it's harder to 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 cover that up and I, just based on dale's background i don't know that he would have been just making people disappear without a trace and we but would he have knew, found he nothing. may not be the great base right killer. and that's like, seems yeah. unlikely in my opinion so yeah i think serial killer is definitely an option but i, I just mm-hmm. don't i don't necessarily think it was dale or dale is a great basin killer either mm-hmm. but i see why they're looking at him i mean they have to i think they should have looked at him more really ruled it out well they can't get him to talk i mean he's mm-hmm. he's already but investigate more if he was really in call in Greeley at that time yeah i mean it gets difficult when you have individuals crossing multiple state lines and stuff it gets you know it's harder to investigate that mm-hmm. so going back to steve here detective zerga hasn't ruled out that steve is a suspect officially but it seems like he doesn't think steve did something to amy steve was in excellent physical shape but to zerga the question is why wait until amy was on a run it seemed to make more sense that he would do it at home Zerga really would like to rule Steve out, but he says he can't until Steve sits down with him and takes that polygraph. The polygraph would even consist of questions Steve and presumably his lawyer would know beforehand. But as far as we know, Steve hasn't taken that polygraph. And and of course, Zerga does acknowledge that probably no lawyer in the world would advise that Steve take it. So it seems like they're currently at a stalemate. Steve is listed as a person of interest in the case, but not a suspect. And interestingly enough, even Steve has doubts about the Dale Wayne Eaton theory. In a 2016 email to Runner's World, Steve wrote, As much as Eaton makes an attractive suspect, I don't think we're ever going to learn anything from him. I think trying to point the finger at him just provides a convenient answer in a situation where there are no answers. With every year passing, the likelihood of finding useful information decreases. Steve had Amy declared legally dead in absentia in 2004. So this was seven years after she went missing, which is a legal minimum to have someone declared dead in absentia. He also remarried and he and his second wife have two kids together and he still lives in Lander today. Amy's family is still very upset that Steve hasn't taken a polygraph. According to Amy's mom, Joanne, he never agreed to share any information with law enforcement or our family. If he was a loving husband, he would do anything he could do to help. Joanne and her family haven't spoken to Steve since the 10K, 
and he had no intention of speaking with police more anytime soon. Joanne just wishes after all these years that the case could be solved and nobody in the family has accepted Amy's disappearance, but they try to learn to live with it. Sadly, in 2001, Amy's father, Dwayne, passed away, and that means he never found out what happened to his daughter, which is just terrible. That's heartbreaking, man. So far, besides the car, any other clues as to what happened to Amy haven't turned up. I mean, no blood, no body, no clothes, nothing that she was wearing that day, nothing like that. $100,000 of reward money was eventually converted into scholarship funds. Amy is still classified as an endangered missing person. Her case is still unsolved and leads have dried up, so the case has gone cold at this point. If you have any information, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-442-8477 or the Fremont County Sheriff at 307-332-5611. So let's discuss some potential theories here. Obviously, the police believe that Amy could have been attacked by a mountain lion or a bear while she was on her run. Then the animal dragged her body back to a cave and her remains haven't been found. And that is possible. But unlikely based on prior incidents of people being attacked by wild animals. Mm -hmm. I actually just did an episode on wild animal attacks. And I mean, when a wild animal attacks you, a bear or a mountain lion, which would been the most common animal she would have been attacked by there would be evidence of that there would be blood for sure they don't cleanly like bite you and drag you away and most of the times depending you know they're gonna do the damage where they find you and then maybe eventually take pieces with them but it's very unlikely that it was a an animal that attacked her in my opinion i don't know much about wild animal attacks has there ever been i guess you don't know everything about it but i wonder if there's ever been a situation where someone goes into shock and like passes out and there's no need for the animal to viciously attack that's not how animals eat though bears they don't like bring you bears destroy you right they destroy you on site yeah Mm -hmm. they rip you apart so a, why would a mountain lion's going to grab you by the neck, most likely, or the arm, or some some. So something would be left. There behind. would be yes, or like there, drag marks, even or just yeah, something. It sounded like it had recently rained too, so they would have found. I mean, they searched immediately, like within 24 hours, they would have found some evidence because she didn't go into the woods, as far as we know. Right. She was on Loop Road, so there would be blood on Loop Road somewhere, where and clear signs of where an animal would have dragged her off, and likely there would have been part of her still there it's not like the animal goes and cleans it all up and takes it all with them it takes what it wants and leaves the rest i mean it was so soon after that they were out there they would 100 percent found her so what do you think about the theory that someone hit her with their car potentially a drunk driver and then got rid of her body i still think even in that scenario well first of all it's in the afternoon People drink and people drink and drive, I guess, in the afternoon. It's still possible. And I mean, they may not have been drunk. They may have just accidentally hit her, didn't see her. And yeah, it's it's certainly possible. I just think that there would still be be more evidence to suggest that there would have been somebody would have saw something. And I mean, to you got to think about the person who would do something like that. Would they be capable of pulling that off without any? Yeah, because you have to be quick. If you're hitting somebody to the point too where they're dead on impact. Like, would somebody hit somebody and then on accident and 
if they didn't kill that person, would they then pick them up and take them off, like kidnap them essentially? And I think that's a highly unlikely scenario. If they did kill them, even then, there would have been something. There would have been skid marks from from a vehicle hitting it. Mm-hmm. There would have been some evidence of like the car going off the road or footprints of yeah. other people walking around. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, to me, this was a this was a, a as clean of an abduction as you could possibly pull off. Like the, that she just the yeah, yeah, she just vanished off of the road, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think that I don't think that's a scenario. I think I think it's one of two things. I think clearly she was a victim of foul play. I think we can pretty confidently say she was a victim of foul play. It's not like she went for a run and decided to leave her whole life behind. Well, and I just don't think disappear. we can clearly say that. What if she got in some sort of accident and she couldn't call for help? And was she would have turned up found. somewhere. Where would she have gone? I know she was just on Loop Road. Where would she have? And somebody would have Could seen her. Could an animal her? have? taken her away after she there would be evidence they would have found it dogs would have sniffed the blood there had been that's true. there Especially they had cadaver dogs i mean they would have found there's been zero nothing nothing found mm-hmm. hmm. i am very interested in the van that's parked that is very sketch to me and one thing that is kind of a consistent trend among serial killers is they use vans like it seems like this cliche from movies but it's a legit thing Mm -hmm. like a lot of serial killers that i've looked into have used vans to abduct victims because you know those vans they can't see in the back most of those utility vans they have no windows it's easy to to bound somebody and kidnap them really easily put them in the back and you're off and the fact that people saw a white van just hanging out up there in that area when she went missing is very very suspicious because i mean think about it the perfect place for some uh, a predator to abduct somebody is in this place. To me, this is somebody local to the area. This is somebody who knows this area very well, knows where to go, where nobody will see them, knows the right time of day, potentially somebody who was even stalking her. We don't know for sure. and Or it was just a crime of opportunity. The person was just up there knowing that people are going to come running up this road and was just waiting for the right moment for a woman to be running by herself. I mean, think about this too. There was just that case in Arizona, I believe, where that woman was running and a guy came up out of nowhere and killed her yeah. on the trail. Yeah. And this happened like within the last couple of weeks. Oh, it's horrific. It's horrific. Yeah. And it's, What's, this happens. Someone look that up. I forget. Um, uh, yeah, that happened really recently. But it, I mean, this happens all the time. She was an esthetician that might help. Just, yeah, Arizona woman. I mean, you could you'll find it really easily. But this happens all the time. I mean, where, it does. yeah. I think about like in college. You know, where I went to school in the mountains here. Like, yeah, people are going hiking a lot. Young women going hiking a lot, and a lot of times you want to do it alone. You know, your friends' schedules don't match up. And we heard many stories about people up in like the state park, yeah. Eldorado Canyon. Yeah. There was a yeah. woman that was assaulted while she was hiking alone like there was many stories where you know yeah well that's what i'm saying yeah crime of opportunity and what better place than going to a place where you know there's not going to be a lot of people around that's a good point and you can easily hide you can easily nobody's there to save you up there i mean it's not like there's rangers roaming the trails all the time it's not like there's there's not service a lot of the times up there so it's hard i mean and this was before cell phones was a thing so this yeah. is like the perfect hunting grounds for a predator 
who is looking for their victim. And I think that's exactly what happened. Somebody was, if it, if it wasn't Steve, it was somebody else who was using this area to hunt for victims. And Amy may have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time when they took advantage of the fact she was running alone. That's why it's just so important to hike and run, you know. For male or female. I mean, you yeah. shouldn't, I mean, it's. it's you shouldn't be alone. You period. really shouldn't. Yeah, an animal can attack you. And, yeah, definitely men too. I mean, yeah. you could get in, in an accident, animal accident. Well, I covered the the, the guy that was running up in, uh, I believe it was in the Boulder area. He was running on the trail. He was trail running in a mountain line, jumped out and jumped on him. He ended yeah. up killing it's the hard because i know that so many outdoorsy people seek that peace yeah and you want to go out there alone yeah you're like but i was actually just hiking over the weekend by myself and julia i know it julia was, <laughs> well mm. you know i think people are still gonna do it there's always gonna be people yeah that sure do it. and i would have preferred to go with other people but biggest thing is one charged phone you know on your person water food all that and especially if you're a woman, but really anyone, mace. Yeah, at least some bring sort something. Of safety tools, especially, yeah. I mean, because mace. Bear spray. You might need it if there are, yeah, mountain lions, bears on the trail, but, mm -hmm. you know, it'll just make, it'll make you feel safer to begin with and mm -hmm. you can just really, you know, enjoy your hike more. But yeah, it's yeah. it's safer. So that woman we mentioned who was murdered in Arizona recently is named Lauren Heike. She's only 29 years old. This happened uh, April 29th near a hiking trail where she would often walk. And this was only a half mile from her home. So a recently yeah. re released felon yep. stabbed her to death on the Jesus. hiking trail. And that, that's the thing though, too, is like <sighs> when you're out hiking, oftentimes you're, this is also another tip. Don't wear earbuds. Don't, you know, Which don't sucks, play music. You want to like, enjoy the music. You want to, you need you to be able be to hear your surroundings, not just for, especially you know, human noise predators, canceling. But animal predators as well. That's yeah, it's definitely nice not that noise canceling. There's some brands out there that have the ability to yeah, switch. Yeah, but even then, you're you're not going to be able to hear somebody creeping up on you. That's true. They're going to, uh, yeah. I just am like, there. It sucks that this is the world that we're in that you can't like feel safe going. out into nature where you're supposed to be able to see out into and literally peace. anywhere. Yeah, the I mean, grocery store, the now. mall, the yeah. your school. It's the truth. It's fucked up worlds. You really got to be vigilant at all times, everywhere you are. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the individual that did this to Amy that made her disappear is somebody local to Lander, Wyoming. That's just yeah. somebody that's kind of living in plain sight. You know, you see that a lot of the times too. It's like the the guy down at the the fitness center she worked at for all I mean, it could have been any somebody mm -hmm. who they they knew exactly where she'd be that day. She had talked to them prior into the day. If I were investigators, I would be investigating every single person that she came into contact, especially males, that she came into contact at her work in in that day mm -hmm. and just look into every single one of them because it could just it could be literally somebody who's just hiding in plain sight. So obviously we've gone over the theory already in detail, our thoughts on the Great Basin Killer and Dale Wayne Eaton. So I won't go over that again, but let's go back to Steve once more i think there's a lot of very concerning things and i mm -hmm. understand the families seems to me that they think that steve is somehow involved yeah i would say that um, they, they definitely allude to that they're very the suspicious of him they don't talk to him anymore 
I think the writings are very concerning for Especially sure. Especially if we if we could actually see them, I think that would really put it into perspective to read the words ourselves yeah, and yeah. know what he was saying especially that he talks about murdering someone and hiding their remains. That I think is, that is extremely alarming. I mean, you see that in other killers cases out there as mm-hmm. well, where they're mm-hmm. writing about doing this. And especially right. it's concerning if he was writing about this in high school. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of always something that maybe he was fantasizing about potentially. And, and he finally had the opportunity. Cause here's the thing too, is like what better person to, make someone disappear than an experienced climber who knows where to stash a body go find a crevice in a rock somewhere where nobody's going to ever look mm-hmm. and you could easily dump remains in there and no one would ever find it i mean and then you go back to the woman who thought that she saw steve's possibly truck and, saw yeah, steve's truck with yeah. her in the passenger seat although um, it's it's i mean his alibi though is what i go I back know, to it's is pretty like, hard why would somebody cover for him which yeah that seems he was closer with Amy, so that just really doesn't add up. It seems like he really has kind of a rock solid alibi, and he could have been an abusive, shitty guy, right? And just and by still coincidence, not, yeah, it doesn't yeah. mean he made her disappear, right? Right. I mean, I think if he was truly involved too, I don't know that he would have like stayed in Lander, and like he's still very like. Well, active. it would almost make it yeah. Look I mean, worse true. If he left, that's true. But I, don't know. I mean, oftentimes we see people leave the area. I wonder so. if there's more that the family hasn't said because they do seem to really lean in Steve's direction. And and why is that? If there is this, there's got to be alibi, more. There's got to be more there because maybe like, what's the motive too? Like, what would be the motive for Steve? Right, because there was no life insurance money to get. It wasn't like there'd any, be a reason for him to no, do this. There wasn't any motive. So it'd be like, why would he just Mm-mm. go up there and do like? kidnap her and then yeah what would be the point of that but obviously there's investigators have said he's a person of interest at this Mm -hmm. point there is no he's not a official suspect he's there's no evidence as far as we know that conclusively connects him to her disappearance so at this point what about the idea that she disappeared on her own accord another possibility is what if steve helped her leave on her own accord like steve's Mm -hmm. a part of the plan to do that yeah that, but that that's weird and does that doesn't i mean they had just started a life they had just got in a house so like they were just starting yeah i i think this was a something totally random somebody was hunting in that in that on that road that day that van i just i can't get that van out of my head i think whoever is in that van was the one that took her mm, i'm stuck i kind of lean 50 50 steve's direction and a, a random person but it's hard i mean i don't really yeah. have any certain it's just crazy there's zero evidence yeah. zero no, nothing really no signs not she a lot vanished without a trace from from no. loop road no no blood nothing crazy we definitely want to hear your thoughts of course let us know what theory makes most sense to you or if there's something that we didn't point out that you think could be a possibility let us know in our comments or you can head over to our instagram page and give us your feedback there as well. Um, But that is going to be it for us today, guys. We'll be back next week, of course. But until then, keep on taking your mind a mile higher.